Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 37, designed by Jessica, recorded on September 15th, 2015. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm good, and I thought I would ask you uh, about the fact that you taught a class over the weekend which you had never taught before, which doesn't happen that often to you these days. And maybe you could talk about what you did and how, what you learned from it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the thing is, as you become a more and more experienced teacher, you develop like a portfolio of classes, and then you just kind of travel around the world teaching that portfolio of classes. But I teach a lot in New York, and so I'm always looking to have new classes here in particular. Um, cause my students, I have a lot of repeat students and they always want things that are new. And so actually the ink pad asked me to create a lettering class and lettering is something that I do, but I'm certainly not a calligrapher or anything. And they wanted a full day lettering class. And so, uh, I did it and it was interesting for a couple of reasons, which is, I mean, a, I was teaching the class on Rosh Hashanah, which meant that a lot of my normal students couldn't come. And a lot of the students who were in the class had to leave like halfway through. So that already was kind of tough, but two, it was a very different crowd. A lot of the students that normally take classes from me want to do, um, paint and you know collage and all this kind of stuff and this was a crowd that uh I think was just much more interested in being a little more precise and etc etc so the thing about a new class is always that you have the theory of how it's going to go and then you have the actuality of how it really goes it's like raising children by the way and didn't I turn out even better than you ever imagined mom I don't think the project is finished yet Oh, good point. Good point. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I always discover things along the way. And one of the things that I loved that I did in class is I think that an in-person class, you have to take advantage of the fact that you're in a classroom of other people, you know, because so often I feel like – what is the point of taking a class where there's, you know, 22 other people in class? And the point is that you get to learn from the other students as along with the teacher. So I had this idea of how I was going to use the other students in class, and I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And uh-huh. it did. And that was magical. So now I'm super excited, and I tried to write down all my little notes about what worked and what didn't, et cetera, et cetera, so that the next time I teach it, it'll be even better. And isn't it sort of related to – you had a month-long uh, Inktober last year where every day on your Instagram feed you published uh, a lettering uh, project and a lot of people played along. Yeah, you know, there's this guy who's an illustrator or a comic book artist, I believe, who started this thing called Inktober. And I took it, you know, the only rule was that you had to ink something every day. And I took it as a chance to do lettering um, because lettering is something that I'm interested in and I wanted to get better at. And I definitely did get better. And so a lot of what I was teaching is stuff that I sort of learned through that process of doing that. Um, and I think uh, this is the thing that I always tell people. I think a class is a great way to jumpstart yourself. I think a class is a great way to like get, there's a woman who came to class for two days and she said, you know, I said, what do you want to get out of class? And she said, this is time away from my dog, my kids, my husband, this is me time. And I, and I think a lot of people come to class for that. But I think in the end, you know, class is a beginning and I think you need to do that everyday practice. You need to have those experiential learning things along the way because I always tell people when you make a mistake, it's great because you're going to learn from that. And so you need to fall down a couple times, so to speak, artistically in order to have those moments. So maybe you'll do Inktober again or maybe not. Yeah, I'm hoping to. I With the move, it's complicated, but that's a whole other topic about it. But I'm hoping I will because I'd like to keep going and do even more awesome lettering. All right. Anyway, lots of possibilities in the world, Mom. Anyway, you can probably hear our guest banging away in the background. Um, our guest today is Jessica Sporn, and she is a former actress. We have that former theater background in common. She's a former lawyer, which we do not have in common, an activist, and she's now an artist and a mother, and she's been drawing and painting for as long as she can remember. 
She is an accomplished, self-taught mixed media artist whose style is colorful and ranges from whimsical to spiritual with a strong folk art influence. And she hosts a successful meetup group with monthly classes in her Montclair studio. For those of you who don't know, that's Jersey. Joyzy. Joyzy. And she also teaches at the Ink Pad in New York City, which we've talked about many times, and at the Artists You Mix Media Retreats, which I would like to talk about. I know they have those out in Stanford. I've never been, and I want to know yep. about them, um, as well as online classes. And she also is a licensed designer. Her designs can be found worldwide on greeting cards, fabrics, tabletop ceramics, and she also designs stencils for Stencil Girls and stamps for Rubber Moon. And I think this is really interesting because this is where I really first noticed Jessica's work standing out, which is she develops a lot of Judaica products. And it's really interesting uh, because there just aren't that many Judaica products out in the world, I feel like. Yep. So, you know, I, I don't know, Jessica, do you think there's a lot out there? It feels to me like there's almost nothing. Well, it's interesting because when I go to the gift show to meet with Aviv Judaica, who's my, my, I guess, my, my main client, for the Judaica work, um, there is there there's a whole area of Judaica, but it's all very very similar. And I think um, the niche that I've found and why Philip and I work so well together is sort of bringing a little bit of whimsy to Judaica and making it a little more contemporary. Um, so I guess that's been my sort of uh, niche, my my Judaica niche. But it's very funny because when I go um, to the gift show, he likes me to come because we see a lot of the samples of, of things that we're working on. And then there are all the buyers from different synagogue stores all over the country. And um, you've experienced this, Julie, I'm sure, like, you know, how some people think you're famous in a, in a small little context, you know? And so it's funny to me that these people like they want to take their picture with me and the ceramic menorah so they can show their people you know that they met the artist who designed the menorah meanwhile like i don't i don't really feel like i'm a famous person in the art world if you know what i'm saying Yes. I mean, I think like that is always um, a lovely and exciting moment when people are, you know what I mean? They're excited to see you and that they love your art enough to see you. Right. I have um, dear friends who met in the original uh, company of dancing, on Bob Fosse's dancing on Broadway when it was at the Broadhurst in the late 70s, early 80s. And they came with me to one of these shows and they thought it was so funny. You know, this, this um, idea that, you know, you, people can become well-known in very small contexts when they're not well-known anywhere else. Yeah, well, it's like everybody has a niche. And I always tell people that it's kind of like if you went to um, – comic-con do you know what i mean there are people who would recognize uh characters from uh, comic books that i just would not because i don't read comic books do you know what i right. mean and they would be geeked out excited about it and there nobody thinks that everybody's like okay well comic-con everybody it has their fandom so it's like everything has their fandom whether it's i'm sure there are video game designers who people go crazy for or you know uh, uh i don't think i'd recognize a lot of fashion designers but i'm you know i know they have obviously have huge fans and it gets like smaller and bigger obviously in every context and it is an interesting part of this job on some level the idea of having like a public image of some kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just find it very, um, very interesting having at one time been in a theatrical world um, and then being a lawyer, which for me was just an extension of acting, honestly. <laughs> um, and then coming into art, it's, it's, it's all very interesting. Were you a trial attorney? Um, I, I was, although I worked in one of these huge firms. So um, I think in the seven years that I practiced, I only worked on two trials in those whole seven years. But I did a lot of depositions and I argued um, motions in court. Um, but I remember when I went to law school, which was after auditioning for things in, in the city and, and performing a bit, um, 
and my my fellow students were so worried about having to stand up in class and and you know be on their feet answering questions about a case about the homework and i thought well my god you know we got to read this in advance we got to prepare like you know you're not being asked to pretend that you're an ice cream cone and melt to use the uh chorus line i was gonna say who am i anyway, anyway. there you go yes <laughs> i was clearly not a singer ever but yes but that song definitely for me is always i mean for those of you who don't know there's this um song that opens chorus line where they're talking about their headshots and they're looking at their headshot on their resume and they're saying like who am i anyway you know am i my resume uh that is a picture of a person i don't know and they talk about needing this job and it's interesting because obviously I can see how like you were just saying that your life in the theater obviously translated somewhat into your life as a lawyer. And I, I mean, I feel like my life in the theater, I see how it translates into my life as an artist as well, mm -hmm. you know, and some of that, like, obviously all the freelancer things about needing a job and, you know, are you the things that you create? Are you, I mean, we're talking also about having these sort of like celebrity moments. Like, are you that person that they think you are versus who you really are? Like, I think there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, no, it is. And, and I don't, you know, I hope I'm, I don't mean to come off sounding like I think I'm some big celebrity or anything. It's just, it's just in the menorah world, you know, but it's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. And, uh, but I do think, and I know you've said this before, that, that everything you do in life it comes in useful, comes in handy in some way. And, um, you know, they, they, I'm, I'm also a yoga teacher, and that's in actually the yoga sutras, that no, no part of study is ever lost. So um, I do find my theatrical work comes in when I teach, you know, sort of, I've, it's never been hard for me to stand up in front of a group of people um, or, or just having done a lot of improv work. It sort of feeds into when you're working on something and it's not coming out exactly the way you might have anticipated and you just go with the flow and you change it and you change direction. Let's so. talk a little bit about that because I think improvisation in the theater is the perfect metaphor for a lot of art creating. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, when, when you're doing an improv, particularly with someone else, um, and well, yeah, because I guess improv by yourself is just like stand-up, right? But <laughs> <laughs> So when you're doing an improv with someone, there, there's that, the unexpected, you don't know what they're going to do. It's not scripted. And so you ha you go with the flow, you have to go with the flow and you have to constantly abandon where you thought it might be going. Yes, because the cardinal rule of improv is say yes. Exactly. That's the number one thing that everybody will always tell you when you're doing improvisation, which is you have to say yes. And for those of you who don't know, improv is, I, I don't know if we need to explain this, but I feel like I should, sure. which is improvisation is just when you're in an, an acting situation and you are, don't have a script and you're sort of uh, making it up as you go along. However... Um, when they mean when they say yes, what that means is if your partner in the scene says, "Oh my God, look, it's a huge whale," you don't say, "Where I don't see it," or "Why is there a whale in a candy store?" Yeah, you say I'm yes. <laughs> you help the other person and you say, "Oh my God, you're right. It's a huge whale and it's coming right for us." Right. Right. You know, is that you you participate in it? And I think sometimes when you're creating art. Um, you have to remember to say yes. So you put a blue streak of paint on there and it changes the painting in a way you weren't expecting. So instead of trying to go back to where you wanted to go, the candy store, so to speak, right. you're going to say, no, no, now there's a whale. Let's see what's happening with the whale. Right. Exactly. And, and it requires, you know, you got to just keep breathing, keep breathing, keep and, and, uh, you know, riding the wave. Up, surf, surf the wave. Yeah, I mean, because I feel like the the paint is the other, or the paint, or the collage material, or the yep. pen, or whatever is the is your partner in the scene, so to speak. It's the other person in the scene. Yeah, and you have to just like when you're opposite a real person, you have to listen to them. You have to look at them. You have to react to them. 
And it's the same with your art supplies. You have to, you know, spend a lot of supplies, like with watercolor, my goodness, you know, if you try to control it, forget it. You, you've got to let it talk to you and then you talk back and um, have a conversation. It, yeah, I think, I don't know, in one of your earlier podcasts, I think with Jane Davies, you, the two of you talked about letting the painting sing to you. Yes. Well, it's a lot better when the painting sings to me than when I sing to it. I will tell you that much. That much is very true. But, you know, one of the things when I, so in my 20s, I worked for my father for a little bit and I used to teach this course with him where I would teach improvisation, theater skills, um, improvisation, theater skills to business people as a way of helping them, you know, understand how to think on their feet. Right. And you're talking about like you're a lawyer, you have to answer questions on your feet in court or any of the kind of things. Right. Improvisation really uh, is always a helpful skill. And um, one of the quotes that I love, which is from Viola Spolin, who is an improv guru, is she always said that um, improvisation is the moment where planning and opportunity meet. And I think that people always think of it as, hey, you just say anything, you just do anything. But it's not. It's actually, it's like planning, meaning the um, practice that you've done, the skills that you've developed, the all that kind of stuff comes into play. And people often point to like jazz groups as a way of saying this, which is everyone there knows how to play an instrument and they know how to play it really well. But they can improv together because they're capable of listening to what's happening and going with the flow because they know their instruments so well. And I think like as a visual artist, I think the applicable idea is that you know how the paint's going to work, you know how the collage material is going to work, you know how the pen is going to work, you you know how your instruments work. And so you're listening to the music that the canvas is putting out and then you're walking through the door of opportunity that opens. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Now you mentioned breathing and you also mentioned that you're a yogi. Yes. And so we've been talking about skills transferring. Um, and I know, like, for instance, Flora Boley does a lot of yoga along with her art. And there are other teachers who do that, too. Do you f incorporate the two in any way? Do you find that there is spillover back and forth? Well, only in this. I mean, um, I don't have a practice where, for example, like I meditate before I start a painting or anything like that. But I do think the sort of being with what is and being with the process and uh, letting go of judgment, um, taking, you know, deep breaths, kind of trying to be mindful of what my body's doing and notice if, you know, things aren't going the way I think they should be going and my hands are getting tense or I'm holding stress somewhere. And uh, yoga gives me the tools to kind of work with that. Um, particularly like I used to think I w wasn't very good at faces and faces are still something that I, you know, I feel like I'm always learning and, and admiring other people's work and, and wanting to try on different styles. And, um, but I've been able to stop being so tense while I'm working on a face and, you know, just let it go and, and know, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna look like some type of somebody, you know, and it might not look exactly like the somebody I started off drawing or, or painting, but um, that was in place where I used to get very stressed and tense. And um, I've tried to let go of that. I and, think you know, relaxation is really important. And I've said to Julie in the past that I feel that she draws or paints completely differently in watercolor than she does in acrylics or oils. And I think there's a sense of relaxation when she does watercolors. I don't know why. Maybe she thinks of it as a quicker process or she doesn't expect as much from herself. But you can definitely see it when somebody is more relaxed in their artwork. Yeah, well, you really can't try to control watercolor unless you sort of treat it like acrylic paint you know you don't use a lot of water and then then why are why use watercolor anyway i think there's a lot of stuff that when you 
try to control it. I mean, like, let's get meta meta here. I mean, like people, yeah. <laughs> life situations, right. you know, your hair, whatever it is you, that you just, the more you try to control or hold tight, the worse it kind of gets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you, I know you've taken classes with Tracy Verdugo, right, Julie? Mm-hmm, I did. Yeah. And, and um, I have, and I also took Flora Boley's online um, Bloom True, I think it was called, class. And, um, you know, that was so freeing because both uh, Flora and Tracy, they go over and over and over and uh, just loving the process. And, and um, this is a sort of an interesting thing in, in my work because in the licensing work, I am very end product oriented. Whereas in, in the mixed media world, you know, there, there it's how delicious is that to just keep going over your canvases and collaging and adding more marks. And, um, you know, you can work on the same canvas for, for weeks. Well, let's talk about that, about that sort of like being end product uh, necessarily being sort of end product driven versus creating for yourself, perhaps. Can you just talk to us a little bit about um, that kind of experience of creating? Sure. Well, uh, just for example, um, one of the menorahs, one of my newer menorahs coming out for Hanukkah 2016 is a uh, tea party menorah. So I have this whole line of um, little resin and ceramic menorahs that are geared towards kids 10 and under. And um, they all have these different themes, like there's a school bus menorah and there's a construction site menorah. And then for this tea party menorah, basically what I draw out, um, because I, I do everything initially on paper by hand. I don't actually draw on the computer. Um, so I will draw out, sketch out, like, so this one had like a little retro kitchen in the background. And then, then in the foreground, there's a table, two chairs with two little dolls sitting on them, and they're having a little tea party. So in that sense, because um, Aviv Judaica wanted a tea, little tea party with dolls in front of a retro kitchen, I literally, you know, draw out and paint with watercolor a refrigerator, a retro stove, a table, chairs, two dolls, and they're all separated in what I call spots of art. And then I, I scan them in, I collage them on the computer to lay so them just out. just one second, they're all separated in spots of art, meaning each is and done like on a separate piece of paper? Yeah, or in other words, like I'm not drawing it as you would see it with a perspective where the tables are in front of the refrigerator. I draw the, I draw and paint the refrigerator separately, and I draw and paint the table and the chairs. And then I scan them in. Um, so, I mean, they can all be on one sheet of paper, but then in Photoshop, I will separate each one out. Each one is its own layer. And then I will lay them out. So I'll literally set the little table with the teacups and the teapot, but I'm setting them in Photoshop by selecting and dragging the... So it's almost like when you look at old cartoon cells before computers where, you know, like Bugs Bunny is on a different layer than the carrot, which is on a different layer yeah. than the tree, et cetera, each part drawn separately so that you can edit each part separately. Exactly. And then it's not hard if, um, for example, uh, when I first did this Tea Party menorah design, uh, it had the, the refrigerator had um, like a little piece of art on the refrigerator as if a child had drawn a menorah and the someone had pinned it on the fridge. And it turned out that that was too complicated for the factory in China to, um, to replicate. So if I had, if I had painted that refrigerator with the piece of artwork on it, I would have had to do a lot of, um, uh, just digital maneuvering to try to erase it from the fridge and match the existing background. Do you, 
Is this clear? Yes, it makes sense to me. But mom, I know you're not. Su- I'm somewhat. No, I get off. it. But okay. I was just going to say, in case there are people out there who are not as up on their Judaica as I am, maybe you could tell people what is a menorah. Oh, so a menorah is the special candelabra that uh, we light on Hanukkah, and it has one taller candle called the shamus, which is like the leader candle or the the worker candle and then there are eight smaller candlesticks that represent the eight nights of Hanukkah and uh so it it's become almost um there's just a lot of art around the menorah just like I guess in all religions there's a lot of art around the kind of symbolic um oh help me out here I was going to say there is always, there's always art around any religious objects, and I think the menorah is certainly something that I think. I mean, I'm not a particularly religious Jew, and I have several menorahs in my home uh, because they're beautiful, yeah. and because it's one of those ceremonial objects that you can um, you can get fun, whimsical ones. You can get serious ones. Somebody once gifted me one that they said was culturally perfect for me because it's actually mahjong tiles you know with asian characters that make up a menorah Mm -hmm. because two kinds of people play mahjong old chinese ladies and old jewish ladies so it kind of works out you know and like i have a menorah that i bought at an art fair and i have a menorah you know and menorahs are just they're um they're beautiful whether you're using them for the holiday or not i mean i think it's interesting uh creating i love the idea of creating menorahs for children because it's like it's a great sort of entryway into having a symbol or something for you that you know is a is religion but it's also it's about family and sharing and all that kind of stuff right and then uh, i designed seder plates and um matzah plates and all all sorts of you know they're just like there are people who bring out their christmas um tableware you know, they change over all their plates and so on. So there are Jewish people who do that too. And so um, particularly for Passover, because uh, very religious Jewish people will don't want to use plates that have had leavened bread on them. So a lot of Orthodox Jews have completely different kitchenware for Passover. Right. I mean, really Orthodox Jews have three sets of plates, right? And I've even heard, I think my parents once went to look at a house um, when they were buying a house that had three dishwashers, right, Mom? Right. And it strikes me that there's a a commercial niche that's gone unfilled, which is like the tradition of the ugly Christmas sweater. Where is the ugly Hanukkah sweater? Yeah, we got to get on that. Right away. There you go, Mom. You could have an internet <laughs> empire selling that stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so so that so what getting back to the idea of um, product driven design. So it's very specific. Where um, my client will want a school bus menorah. So there's no sense playing with lots of layers and marks and abstract uh, paint strokes and so on. I just sort of get to it. Do you in do you enjoy the two kinds of creating the same, or is there one you like more than the other, or does it depend on your mood? Well, until I found your class, thirty days in your art journal, I did not know about this mixed media world, and um, so really, mostly what I all of my work were, was either for greeting cards or the Judaica products and. Um, I I never thought of myself as an artist, like with a capital A, but I enjoyed the fact that I had been able to stop practicing law and make a living doing this. Um, So, but finding the mixed media world, it was kind of like, you know, jumping into the looking glass. So that (laughs) I was going to say, I'm so happy to have been the gateway drug to a lifelong addiction, and I apologize. Well, no, but you you certainly were, and it and it happened in such a funny way. So, um, my daughter was at was at the Montclair Cooperative School, which is a very crunchy granola kind of project based learning school, and parents have to do what's called assists, and the uh, art teacher 
um, reached out to me and said, in lieu of the normal kind of assists, which are, you know, making copies and collating and, uh, you know, going to the printer and so on, she said, would you like to teach an art journal in class? And I said, sure. And then I came home and I Googled art journaling because I'd never heard of it. <laughs> and that, that was, I mean, believe it or not, that was three and a half years ago. So, and so the first thing that came up was your class. So I took it and, and uh, it, that's, that's what started the whole thing. The whole addiction. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. you know, I heard, uh, I was listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a podcast. And I, um, yeah. yeah, and they have these fake news stories. And one of the fake news stories that made me laugh is they, there was uh, a guy who uh, he couldn't get hired as the drama teacher unless he taught something else. So he offered to teach German. And then they, the teacher caught him or the principal caught him like he had gotten like five German exchange students and he was trying to basically learn German in order to teach the German class, which I thought was hilarious. But there you go. It actually, it actually sort of happens. Necessity is the mother of invention. It's and, true. You know, I, I took your class and I got uh, Diana Trout's book, Journal Spilling, mm. and um, a couple of other different books. Uh, and I, you know, just sort of devoured them and plowed my way through them. And then, uh, you know, I went, I went to my daughter's school and it was very simple. I mean, we just used um, watercolors and some stamps and things like that. But, you know, I, I started to find this overlap between the work I was doing in the licensing world. And I had been a decorative painter. That, that's, you know, it's this crazy story how I even got into the licensing. But when I stopped practicing law because I was, uh, I had a, just had a baby and I was getting divorced and I just didn't want to uh, leave my, well, I had this very long maternity leave. That was the start of it. And I had painted something on her wall because I always liked to paint. I just uh, didn't ever really study it, um, except for when I was a kid taking classes at the Brooklyn Museum. So someone saw that mural this little mural I had painted and asked me to do a mural on their child's wall. And then someone saw that and asked me to do something on their kid's wall. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do this. I am not going to go back to practicing law. So that's, that, that, that's how so I... How, wait, so then how did that turn into licensing? Okay, so I was, I was uh, painting these, you know, like the cow jumped over the moon and, mm -hmm. and to... Um, what I would do is I would make like a little small painting for the client to say, you know, who would say, first they'd say like, oh, we want something with bunnies or we want some, you know, Peter Rabbit or whatever. And I would draw up and paint a little watercolor for them. And they would say, okay, great. That's good. You know, go ahead and trans somehow translate that onto our wall. And then uh, I was in a, I was, playing Marion the Librarian in a production of The Music Man in my town. And one of the other actors who was playing Mayor Shen, I'm sorry for all your listeners who are not musical theater nerds. I have been in The Music Man. I know what you're talking about. And for those of you who don't know The Music Man, rent the movie. It's very good. Yes, yes. Rent the, rent the original with Shirley Jones. That's the good one. Um, so... I, I was showing him, I had these watercolors for some, I don't even know why. And, and he was a cartoonist and he said, you know, you've created some interesting characters. You should try to license them. And, you know, sort of like with the co-op, you teach art journaling and then have to go home and look up what that is. And I, so I said, well, what is that? So he kind of explained it to me. And I, I went with him to the licensing show and showed got some people to look at my little characters and they were encouraging. And the next year, um, you know, I was just so naive. I, I, I took out a booth at the licensing show. You're talking at Surtex. Well, this was actually licensing because yeah. at the time, this was in 1996 when the licensing show was not just, uh, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants. It, there were a lot of smaller, more unusual so it's it sort of that aspect of the licensing show melded into Surtex. 
Um, and so anyway, I had all my stuff and uh, Creative Connection Inc., which is an artist rep, was across the aisle from me. And they liked my work and said, do you have an agent? And I said, no. And they said, well, we'd like to represent you. Wow, that's like Lana Turner being found on the stool at the uh, ice cream fountain. Oh, no, it was kind of crazy. And uh, within, it, at the same time, I had submitted a lot of designs all over the place and mostly was getting rejected. No, thank you. No, thank you. But Recycled Paper Greetings liked a few of them. And once I had them as a client, it, it was easier to sell me. For my agent, because they, you know, that was a pretty nice gig. And I still work for them. I still do do licensing for them. Wow, that's a long relationship. I know. I know. So that's, that's my amazing. Pretty, talk about follow the bouncing ball, right? Follow the shiny object. But, you know, Jessica, what I see in all this is that it's about showing up and trying. I mean, you you made the choice to submit your designs and you did it. And you didn't just talk about it, you did it. You made the choice to have a booth and to put yourself out there. And, you know, you asked for help for people and you were showing your work. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I feel like you took all these really active steps to, to do the thing. And, you know, you did have the rejections and you did have the this, but instead of focusing on that, you focused on the things where people said yes. Well, I th maybe that's where the, you know, some of the acting stuff helped out because Lord knows I had a lot of rejections there. So, <laughs> you yes. know, and you have to just pick yourself up by your big girl pants and keep on going. And the other thing is that you know that rejection is not always because your work isn't good. It's because you're not the right fit. And I think that's right. the way, if you think about it that way, then you don't get as discouraged. Yeah, that's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah, I yeah. think it's hard to remember that because it feels so personal because we all put ourselves into our art. Right, right. Well, you know what's so interesting? Um, so I this summer I taught a class uh, once a week down at the Jersey Shore. A group of women who are all friends or relatives of one another hired me to come teach this teach them once a week. By the way, and, I feel like you might not really be from Jersey since you put the at in that sentence, and I'm pretty sure you'd just be down the Jersey Shore. Down the shore. Down. <laughs> right. Well, I am from Brooklyn, so. Um, and, and God, when I first moved to New Jersey with my first husband, I, I couldn't even say that I lived here. It was so embarrassing. Because, you, you know, if you're a native New Yorker, you do not look at New Jersey kindly. <laughs> right? So I, I just used to say, oh, I live 15 miles west of the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> there you go. So these women, they hired you to go teach them oh, once a week, which yeah. is a really interesting idea. Yeah, and it was lovely. It was lovely. Although I have to tell you, it was like teaching art journaling at Downton Abbey because the house, really? the house that one of these women lived in, it, it was like the Great Gatsby or something. You know, when, when when I turned into her driveway, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> oh my Lord. But they were very, very sweet, nice, down-to-earth people, despite the, the, the surroundings. The grand uh, surroundings. Yes, yes. Um, so any, one of the woman who actually put the group together, who had met me at the ink pad, um, she kept saying, "Why do I want my work to look more like yours. You're, you have such saturated color, such dense color, and, and mine doesn't look like that. And it's funny because I always look at someone like Dina Wakely. What is it, Wakely? Yes. Wakely. Um, and love how she has so much white airiness in her work. And it's something I never seem to be able to accomplish. I'm always wanting to add more and fill in and more is more and so on. And so I love a bit of airiness and a more subdued palette. And... That's what this woman, her, that was her natural tendency. And yet she was saying, I want my work to look like yours. And it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, and I, I yeah, want I mean, I think we always want our work to look like somebody else's work and take the things that we do well naturally for granted as if it makes them bad. Right. 
You know, but I think it's not any different from like I look at other women's bodies and think I want that or I look at other women's hair. I want that. You know what I mean? And you never look at yourself and say, yeah, rock on, you know? Right. Well, it's like that Groucho Marx, right? I, I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. Yes. Yeah. No, that's I think sometimes when skills come easily to you, you then assume that they're not worth anything, you know, which yeah. is obviously incorrect. My mother accuses me of this constantly. Um, but I think, like, that again comes back to... Uh, I mean, I'm not a yogi like you are, but the little I know of yoga, but just about like being at peace with what is now, like accepting who you are. And like, I remember being in a yoga class and feeling that sort of hyper competitiveness in the sense of like, you know, the person next to you is a pretzel and can do anything. And you're like huffing and puffing and need a little like extra pillow and an arm thing and a foot thing to help you like make the reach and a band and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. And I had this really great yoga teacher who basically said to me and took a lot of the competitiveness, you know, out of it and said like, you know, you, you need to be gentle with yourself and accept where you are now. Like we're each on our own individual journeys and, you know, where somebody else is like, they're trying to work to get past their own, you know, uh, barriers and next places. And, and I, and I think like, that's a great way to also think about like art making too, which is like, we're all on our own individual journeys. And the second you turn and compare yourself to somebody else's journey, I, I think you, you've already lost. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's so true. And, you know, I would say to my yoga students when I was teaching, because I'm, I'm not actively teaching now, um, you know, you, you can never get to where you want to go if you can't be where you are. You'll just never, you'll never get there. You got to be here first. I think that's really, really hard. Yep, it is. It's, you know, it's a constant practice. You know, the internet also feeds into that because now instead of comparing yourself to maybe the person next door or in your town, you're comparing yourself to basically everybody in the world who is presenting a false reality because they edit out the things that aren't working. So you always feel unsuccessful if you use the internet as your comparison. Oh, it's true. That is so true. And Or even, you know, you, you never have as beautiful a vacation or eat it as good a restaurant. I mean, you know, Facebook, everybody's posting pictures of their food and what they just cooked and nothing I cook ever looks like that. <laughs> I mean, I think it's you'd agree. Yeah. I mean, I think like the whole, the whole thing is really hard and it's, um, I actually listened to a Ted talk last night that was all about like screens and screen time and basically how we've all become cyborgs. Because, like, the actual definition of a cyborg is, like, basically, you know, sort of a humanoid that uses uh, external, you know, additional, like, tools, basically, to help itself. And so, you know, the phones that we have glued to our hands or the iPad or the computer or whatever else, like, we've become these cyborgs and we're just not human. Like, we don't interact with people. If you look at people walking down the street, if you look at people in an airport, if you look at people in a waiting room, like, everyone is disengaged from being human. Yep. Actually, um, I, I listened to a TED Talk, not last night, and the person... It's not was, a competition, Mom. You're yes, not better is. than me. <laughs> I listened to a TED Talk <laughs> in which the person was talking about how... Remember the Brontosaurus, and it was so long. I'm not saying remember because you were there, because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but it had a brain in its skull, and then there's this idea that maybe it had a brain further down toward its tail, and... The, the TED Talker speaker was saying, we all have a second brain now. It's in our pockets and it's called the, the phone. <laughs> it's called Google. So we're keeping all this knowledge in a second place. And so we don't put it in our heads because we have it in our phones. Well, that's true. I mean, who can remember a phone number anymore? I, I mean, can't. I although can't it's funny, I can remember childhood phone numbers. Right, because you didn't have a phone to store them in. Right. Well, you know, it also, like, it, it, it makes me worry that we're getting stupider because I remember, like, one of the things, right, is to, to speak Mandarin, for instance, and even to read Mandarin, because it's not an alphabet and it's characters, you have to memorize, like, an insane level 
of these characters. So your brain then becomes wired in a different way because just to be um, literate, you know, you have to have memorized so many things. And the same with like the four tones in Mandarin that I can't even hear or do, but I know they exist because I've been told they exist. Um, you know, then you start to hear the little differences in tones in a way that other people don't. And so like one of the arguments that people have always made for a lot of uh, Chinese students being better students than let's say some of uh, our, the Western students is that because their brains have been hardwired to memorize all this stuff and to hear all these things, they just naturally then have a better uh, I don't know, setup. Can that be a word, a brain setup? Interesting. I, I had never heard that, that about particularly about um, Asian students, but that, that would make total sense. Right. I'll so tell now, you what I, yeah, yes, sorry. you're allowed well, to speak, mother. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for the permission. So I heard another podcast that uh, uh, someone was doing some testing on why so many string instrument musicians uh, are Asian. And it's partly, they think, because listening to the tones has prepared them to pick up the musicality uh, in a different way from, from childhood. Well, that would make sense because a string instrument, it's not like with the piano where you know you know, an A is here, you just press this particular key, where with the violin, you, you have to feel it on the string. There's not a fret or something that, that tells you, here's the A. Right? I right. think. I, well, and obviously they've shown that when you learn a language at an early stage, you put it in a different part of your brain, you learn it in a different way than when you learn it as an adult. So... The brain is very plastic. In fact, let's go back to another podcast. Uh, I heard uh, the other day that babies who are born, they've already become somewhat more responsive toward not just their mother's voice, but the things the mother ate and the as sounds of certain languages that they heard while they were in the womb. Wow. You know, they say that there, I mean, I've actually read a lot of stuff about early learning lately that just talks about um, the unfair advantage that some babies have is just that they've, you know, heard such a larger, enormous vocab of vocabulary words than other babies, you know, or, and that, that stuff actually does influence you, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we do a lot of volunteer work in Guatemala and the... The indigenous people that we work with, they don't have as much of a habit as talking to the, of talking to their children. So the children talk a little bit later. And it's actually something my aunt used to work with, um, I guess, a, you know, a, a, a lower income community in New Rochelle. And that was one of the things she used to try to encourage the parents to talk more to their kids. And if you notice a lot of, you know, like if the child goes to pick up a cup, you, you say, oh, I see you're picking up that cup. And all of that languaging does something. So if we can bring it back to art, then it's really important to encourage your children to look at art, to make art, to look at colors, to, uh, to be sensitive to how things look in order to get them to be a person who doesn't squash their innate artistic interests. And experiment. Don't, don't, don't make them think, you know, that the eyes have to go there and the nose has to go here and the lips have to be red. You know, let them, let them go wild and crazy. Well, you know, the other day, because it's not just about making art, which is obviously important, I think, but it's also about seeing art, because I remember being in MoMA recently, and there was a school group there, and I was sort of eavesdropping uh, on what, I wasn't even sort of eavesdropping, I was flat out listening to uh, what this guide was telling this group of little kids who were sitting on the floor staring at this Matisse painting, and one of the things that I liked so much is she did a lot of Socratic method with them talking about, you know, instead of telling them about the painting, saying, why do you think that Matisse painted, you know, this part green? Or what's a shape that you see repeated several times? And 
what I take away from that too is that um, you learn that you can have an opinion about art. You learn that you can have a, you know, feeling about art, that you can, that it's not like this is what the art is and it's a rule. It's that you can actually analyze it from your own perspective. Right. And that there's not a right or a wrong. I agree. And I think like that's one of the biggest things that I do all the time when I take people on a $2 tour of a museum is I always say, you know, uh, what do you think of this? What do you like about this? What do you hate about this? And remembering that like art is not a uh, absolute thing. It's a thing that you can ha definitely have an opinion about. Right. It's not like two plus two equals four. Which is that absolute? Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know. You know, one of my favorite songs is a song by this group that they're not together anymore called The Story. And it's uh, the title of the song is two plus two is five. So there you go. Well, there you go. It's very That's possible. It's but very we didn't possible. talk about art as you. Do you want to? Yeah, let's talk about art as you really. So uh, how long have you been teaching there? Tell us people what it is. Okay, so art as you is a mixed media retreat. Um, it, they, they happen all over the world. I think they have five locations a year, maybe. Uh, Australia, Petaluma, um, sometimes somewhere down south and Minnesota or Minneapolis. And uh, the one I taught at, and I, well, I've been going there since 2012. Uh, last year was my first year teaching there, and I'll be teaching there again in October. And the two women who run it, um, Sally-Ann and Ellen, um, they're really, I like to call them like art creativity enablers. Um, and so there's such a great vibe at this retreat. It's really like a tribe. People get all dressed up, crazy. You know, you can really let your freak flag fly, to quote another musical theater song. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll have a trivia question about that at the end. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just such a nice, warm, connected atmosphere where people just greet each other like old friends. And it's really a wonderful, supportive environment. So that's what that is. So what are, you, what are you teaching? I am teaching a class this year uh, called Masked and Unmasked Stencils and Silhouettes. So um, basically, it's, it's exploring our inner and outer worlds through using the openings of stencils and the um, uh, silhouettes that we're going to make out of magazine models and so on. But, you know, there'll be some journaling at the start and um, a whole bunch of different techniques as a part of it. So when you say exploring uh, our world and stuff, I mean, it sounds like this class has a strong either emotional or intellectual component to it. Well, you know, that's I, I will bring that to bear um, because we all have sort of the face we show to the world and then our subtext that can be going on at the same time or the things that we keep private. And so we'll have a chance to work with both of those concepts while we're making jelly prints and collaging and making art. But, you know, people can sort of go as deep with that as they want or not. I always think it's an interesting thing to bring in either sort of intellect or emotion into an art making class, especially ambitious in a one day yeah. uh, class, um, because that's something I find very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I feel like people come in with lots of emotion anyway, either they're nervous or they're self-critical. And so the inner part that will start with is just sort of acknowledging it can be acknowledging whatever's going on at that moment or it can be acknowledging something you've been holding on to um, and you don't really want to talk about it but maybe you can scribble journal it underneath lots of layers that you're going to put on top so you're sort of acknowledging that it's there um, it, but you're, you know, you're not trying to hide it. You're acknowledging it, and then you're sort of releasing it. Julie's had people cry in class. Have you? Have I ever personally 
cried? Had, had, no, had students cry in class. Um, yes, but I, I think only out of frustration. <laughs> not because... <laughs> Look, I've had I've had people cry in my yoga classes because they've had some sort of huge emotional release or breakthrough. Uh, I can't say that's happened to me yet in my art classes, but who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe it's coming. You know, they um, the it's an interesting thing because I think art making can be a really sensitive thing for people, and most often, what I find the people who have cried, it's usually because they're so. Um, they're so moved by having found a, it's like what you're saying about art as you having found a family or a group of people or who, who can understand because often in their own lives, they are met with people who think that what they're doing is ridiculous or they, they get criticized and basically told that what they're making is ugly, a waste of time, a waste of money. Um, you know, that they just, nobody seems to get it and they feel like they're, you know, flailing at windmills, you know, that they're just fighting that tide endlessly and to come into a safe place where people are excited and who make you feel good about yourself. A lot of times when people share that they're coming from a negative background, they cry. And I think it's, I think it's because it's a release of tension yeah, around that topic, that it's, that it's the relief of finally being able to say out loud, there's this thing in my life that's so unfair, which is that people don't understand what it is that I'm trying to do, you know, yes. and, and I feel like that, and here's a group of people who, when you say that's so unfair, say, yes, it's unfair. Yes, yes, you're right. You know, you're worth it. You're good. And, and, and that's where that comes from. I think you're right. And I, I think that's why um, out there in the online classes in particular, there's a lot of, there are a lot of classes around healing and art. Um, you know, like Tam at Willowing, um, there, there's just a lot of that where people are really releasing a lot of deep, deep feelings you know art therapy and all that kind of stuff works I think partially because when you can't find the words sometimes you can find the shapes and the colors yeah and I know that for myself like when I've had traumatic events happen in my life one of two things happens which is either I am driven to create to try to get rid of those feelings or I get completely stymied and I can't create because I'm afraid of releasing that, you know, those really big feelings and that can of worms. You know, it's interesting that you're saying that because I I found that lately I have not been working in my journal as much art journaling, or if I do, there's very little text because, um, so recently my parents downsized from a townhouse to an apartment. And so my sister and I had to help them go through all their stuff and, and uh, you know, so much memorabilia. And it really made me think about the fact that someday my daughters are going to go through all of my stuff. And then I thought, well, do I really want them reading a lot of this, these, these deep, dark um, things that I felt? Um, and, and I actually, there, there, I had read somewhere about one art journaler, one artist, who every time she completes a journal, she burns the whole thing. What? Yeah, because for her, it's the process of doing it and releasing and creating, but she doesn't want anyone to ever see it. You know, isn't that interesting? I mean, it is you- interesting. And, you know, I think I go back and forth about it because, for instance, when I bring my journals to class, they are filled with a lot of private information and students often ask to take pictures. And, you know, when I post the pictures of my pages online, I blur a lot of the text because it's private. Mm-hmm. And what I always say to them is I say, you're welcome to take the photos. A lot of the text is private, so I don't expect to ever see it online. And I hope you respect my privacy if and when you, you read that text, you know. Right. But it's an interesting thing because it's, it's, um, I sort of feel like once I've written it down, it's gone. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've said it, I mean, like I don't want to publish it to the world on the internet, but I, you kind of lose control of it. You know what I mean? Cause it's out there. It's written. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, my older daughter is a compulsive journaler. Marielle, if you ever listen to this, I'm sorry I called you compulsive. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, she literally, she writes down every detail of her day at the end of every day. And then she, she has like a separate journal for her, like a happiness journal. I, she, I mean, it's amazing to me. But, and she likes to go back and, and look back at like, what was she feeling at a certain point in time five years ago or whatever. I think it can be really helpful because you can say, oh, wow, look how much I've changed. Look how much I've grown. Look how much, do you know what I mean? That that was something I was so worried about and now it's nothing. Right. For many years, I, Julie I, kept a diary. Uh, like, yeah. For, for a long time, Julie kept a diary and it. It's somehow now with the art journal, she's transferred that over there. But you have lots of diaries sitting around. I do well, have lots of diaries sitting around. It's true. And as do I, but I have to tell you that the ones from like my teenage years and my early 20s, I have destroyed. I never want my daughters seeing them. Mm. <laughs> or my parents, although I think it's less likely that they would see them. So, but it's an interesting question. What, what, what becomes of all these records? It is an interesting question about, about like, what, what do you do with them? And I actually, um, I had an interesting experience, which is um, a friend of mine actually passed away last night. And uh, about a month ago, I had been at her house helping her go through some of her personal papers. And it was fascinating because, um, she wanted me to read her some of them out loud to decide what to keep and what to go through. And it was kind of wonderful to be with her reading these letters from her teenage self to her parents or, you know, other things like that and having the chance to talk about it. And having had that experience, I sort of feel like I don't want to get rid of those records of who I was because as painful or as silly or as whatever as they may be, they are a part of who I am. And I think about like Anne Frank's diary and how her father yeah. redacted so many things that he didn't want the world to know that she had thought about a lot of stuff around sexuality and stuff like that. And I think those are important things that, that, that do connect us all to remember that we're all people or even like Samuel Pepys, who, if you've ever done any Elizabethan theater, which of course we all have, um, <laughs> you know, is the gateway into us knowing how what what Elizabethan daily life was like because he kept diaries where he wrote down like the process of going to the bathroom and the smells in the streets and everything we know about the Elizabethan period is based on the diaries of Samuel Pepys, which if you want to look him up, is actually P E P Y S. Mm -hmm. That's how you spell Pepys. But I don't know. I feel like. I feel like the I may not be ready to look at and read that text tomorrow, but I know that in two years, it's I'm glad it's there and I would never want to burn it or somehow because I feel like that's somehow getting rid of your past. And I think that just like, I mean, let's bring it full circle. We're at the end of the podcast. So let's bring it back to the beginning. Just like we were saying, your former career as an actress and a lawyer and an activist and all that stuff pulls into who you are now and what you do and that nothing's ever wasted. All those, those things I wrote, those things I drew, those things I said, that's the foundation that's created the person that I am today. And while I hated going through some shitty stuff in my life, I wouldn't be who I am without having done it. Amen. There you go. So a good place to end. Anyway, a good place to end. So Jessica, where can people find you online? Well, um, I keep my blog at jessicasporn.blogspot.com. And uh, my stencils are at stencilgirlproducts.com, stamps at rubbermoon.com. I have a Facebook page at uh, called Jessica Sporn Designs. If you just put that in, I'll pop up. And um, that's where I post about my art stuff. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, anywhere else you'll find just through those locations. And mom, in lieu of people find you online, do you have a final thought? I'm waiting for the contractor to come and look at the outside of my house because I had an ice dam last winter and I don't ever want that to happen again. And I was thinking, you know, 
my house is my is my refuge, my castle. And the the way you feel about like your art journals and things is a funny kind of way. I feel that way about my house. Oh. I, I think it must be beautiful. I was going to say, I think it does tell the story of your life because I know the way that you collect things and you can look at everything in your house and remember when you got it, when you found it, when you bought it, where it came from, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Anyway, as always, you can find me at balserdesigns.typehead.com and do leave us your comments or questions at balserdesigns.com backslash arting. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately and everybody reads viewer or listener mail and I would like to read some listener mail. So send us some listener mail so that we can do that. Um, we would love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast. That's A-R-T-I-N-G P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.